Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Tomorrow on the show, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on science versus tradition when it comes to moon gazing and the end of Ramadan. We bumped him to Tuesday. And we'll talk with Chelsea Gazillo, American Farmland Trust's New England policy manager about preserving farmland in the 413. Plus, a preview of the Native Tongues tribute happening at White Lion in Springfield this weekend with Damani Gordon from Genuine Culture, LLC. This past weekend, as part of the UMass Bach Festival, the UMass Fine Arts Center collaborated with the Asian and Asian American Arts and Culture Program to invite three prominent new voices in classical, asking them to create new work as well as celebrate the festival's namesake. We're joined by Vijay Iyer, Teksu Kim, and Heyang Sol Yoon, all of whom are making waves in music and beyond. Thank you so much, each of you, for joining us in this very tight crunch of time. <laughs> My pleasure. Nice to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so what are any of your connections to Bach? Why did you decide to be a part of the Bach Festival? Well, um, I'm going to be playing some Bach for the concert. Um, and um, I'm going to be sharing um, the Adagio and the Fugue um, from Sonata Number no. 3 in C major. And Bach wrote six sonatas and partitas for solo violin. And they're sort of the pieces that, you know, violinists learn from their, you know, very young age. And it's kind of like a, these pieces kind of um, um, develop alongside a violinist's life. So these are, you know, um, pieces that I've um, learned and loved and studied for a very, very long time. And um, I'm going to be sharing just two movements, but um, the fugue that I'm going to be sharing, it's, it's actually um, one of the more kind of monumental works um, that Bach wrote for solo violin. So I'm very excited to share that. There are um, very many opportunities to share a work like that. So I'm really, really excited. And um, Teksu, I asked him to write a piece um, to accompany it and to converse with it. Um, and he literally kind of um, wrote these pieces to be interspersed in the fugue and in, in the, the, the performance. So it will be an interesting um, uh, experience for me to perform and also hopefully for people to listen to. So I'm excited about that. Hey Young, does that count as like a classical remix? Like, so it's the regular Bach fugue, but then Texu has r- written stuff to to work in there. Is that is that how well, it works in in the um, co- the the symphonic world to remix something? <laughs> as as remix goes in like the classical music world, I think yes, Texu has done something like something like that. Um, uh, since since remixes don't happen very much in classical music world, <laughs> we're kind of boring. But um, Texu. It's interesting because um, I think a lot of um, artists and performers have been um, kind of putting new pieces side by side with Bach um, that really, um, you know, is inspired by Bach and is, again, conversing with Bach. Um, And Teksu, he wrote um, two movements. As I'm playing two movements of Bach, he also wrote two movements. And um, one, the, the first movement is going to actually follow my adagio um, of Bach. I'll, I'll perform the adagio and then Texu's first movement will happen afterwards. And then his second movement, he actually, um, he wrote it to be in the fugue. 
So um, the fugue itself is actually divided up into three parts, but um, um, there is like a major moment in the middle of it where there's this big finish, uh, a cadence that happens. And he wrote a the second movement to be played right in the middle of that. <laughs> so um, it was an interesting experience for me because I, I've been working so hard at you know, relearning and restudying the fugue because it is a very uh, big piece for the violin. And then after spending a lot of time on it and kind of, you know, mapping out my, what my narrative will be for the fugue, Texu sends me this piece and then he's like, play this in the middle of the fugue. So I had to kind of almost relearn the fugue <laughs> with the kind of narrative that he has for his piece because i had to now make a narrative that encompassed you know like it, it hold, held his music inside the box music so um it's, so it's less like a remix and more like um rogue one in between the prequels <laughs> to star wars and then the original star wars movies it there falls it right in the yes, middle with I've, the been, I've, been, I've been re-watching the andor andor Always. series so, oh, so i totally I love understand andor. what you're so good <laughs> star wars reference. <laughs> yes exactly that's exactly right <laughs> but it seems like texu your work actually does remix things often i was watching videos of your fanfare and listening to uh segments from america beautiful and there's definitely Definitely motifs that you pick up on that you riff on in really interesting, often funny ways. So what is it like to, I don't want to use the word remix because it's not that, but like to take these contexts that are much more familiar and just kind of blow them apart. Um, that came with uh, my early career as an arranger. So before I became more fully a composer, well, because nobody wanted to play my music, unknown person, who is that person? But there was a big need among my friends uh, to want to play some pieces that are not necessarily written for them. For example, folk music or commercial music that is not necessarily written for classical instruments. And they wanted me to arrange for them. And that's how I became interested in taking existing music and make my own turn with it. One of them, in a way, but it's a, a lot heavier this time because it's Bach. Bach is a revered composer. Whenever you deal with Bach, unless you just uh, completely shudder it, and especially this is not just about about the Bach festival, uh, it comes with a baggage, and that <laughs> made me think: What do I even have to do with Bach? Why? Why is Asian Art Center supporting Bach festival? How? How does it work? So that was a big question, actually, to me. Uh, so it was it, this one is a little extended in terms of uh, my approach. It's not just an arrangemental part. It, I do use the beginning melody of the fugue, C major fugue, which I love. But because of the subjects we are dealing with, I went it a little too far. <clears throat> so 
how is Bach related to any other tradition? Because uh, when we developed this idea with Heyang uh, and Michael, we talked about diaspora, which is great, um, and Asian diaspora in particular, and how is it related to Bach? But I'm that kind of person who would say yes to all the challenges my clients would give. That's my arranger hat, because they would come up with this interesting idea, and I would say, yes, that's going to be fun. Uh, it was fun, but a lot more challenging than usual because Asian diaspora is really far from Bach. But how is it related? And I had to go all the way back to like a basically origin of music. Where is this note come from? Uh, so, so my answer is it comes from breathing. Any music would come from breathing. So it's a the common denominator. So that's where um, the movement, the first movement begins. But also the second movement, which interjects there within the box fugue, is about all the other potential hypothetical offsprings of the same musical ideas. It could go so many different ways. In a way, uh, it's just a variations at the same time or arrangements of the same thing. But uh, it came with a little heavy meaning to those things that uh, those abandoned offsprings because something has become more mainstream. You're premiering a work at this festival, too. I have a note in our set of questions that just says, don't fangirl, because I saw you at <laughs> I saw you at Big Ears. You were one of the acts I was most excited to see. I've been following your jazz work for a while, and now with the Love and Exile trio, it's even more interesting. But I'm really curious what you're premiering in Amherst on Sunday. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thanks for your kind words. I'm glad you were able to. I'm not sure which groups you heard. I did three different <laughs> concerts at Big Ears. I know. All... She was leaving to go to the festival and she was bookmarking where you were going to be at the different places oh. to make sure she could see you <laughs> multiple times. So she's not uh, lying at all. So oh, so I saw cl- your classical work for the first time, which was really oh, wow, cool. Great. But I also saw the um, I saw the Love and Exile trio. Like it was really wonderful. The whole time but that line between jazz and classical that i think your work really treads well is something that i'm excited to see maybe in this premiere maybe it doesn't do that at all but like talk about what you're premiering thanks Uh, and thanks again that's so kind i'm i'm honored um I'm really glad to be a part of this event. You know, when um, I've I've been given prompts of this kind a number of times, I think it's kind of a, in a way, a, almost a cliche that composers have to deal with somehow like articulating their relationship to the past and to like Europe's past in particular. Like I've done like a companion piece to Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I did a overture to the Bach C major cello suite. I did a, one of the pieces you saw me uh, the Parker Quartet play of mine was like finishing an unfinished fragment of Mozart's. I uh, did like a variation based on a theme by Robert Schumann. Like, you know, it's a lot of, I get invited or commissioned to do a lot of work that's commenting on the past to the point where I think I've worked that out for myself in a way that's like, I don't feel like I need to always honor that or, or, or really make that as plain anymore. Um, I think enough has been said about Bach. 
<laughs> that I'm not here to say more, to add to the pile of, of like adulation. <laughs> you know, a lot of the language of, you know, I studied his work. In fact, my first instrument was violin and I grew up playing some of the works that Ye Young was is going to perform. So I am intimately familiar with that language. And then also like I studied, I remember when I was learning harmony, when I was 11 or 12, studying music theory and um, analyzing the Bach chorales, like that became the foundation for me of how I understand counterpoint and harmony. Uh, so that is to say that I feel like it's already in the mix enough that I'm not going to like put a big accent on it, you know? So what the, actually what this piece is, is a kind of, it's a tribute to somebody else who has nothing to do with, <laughs> with Bach or with <laughs> European history or with classical music. His name is uh, Ambedkar and he was one of the most prominent anti-caste activists in India in the 20th century. And so this is a piece called Plinth, P-L-I-N-T-H, for Ambedkar, basically honoring his legacy as an anti-caste activist and um, an ardent, but someone who really changed South Asian history in that way and put that idea in the foreground, influenced many, many generations, both of people in oppressed castes and others who wish to support their struggle. So it's about that. And it's, I'm sure that somewhere in it is something about counterpoint, something about that strain of voice leading that I kind of internalized from studying Bach, but it's not about it. I hope that's okay. So if not Western canon, who and what is now inspiring these three symphonic musicians from Asia? Coming up more with Vijay Iyer, Heyung Sol Yun, and Teksu Kim, from the Performance Codemakers, a collaboration with the UMass Bach Festival this past weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Later in the show, what are the five colleges up to in regards to climate change and carbon neutrality? We'll talk with sustainability directors from four of the five colleges. Right now, more with Vijay Iyer, Heyung Sol Yoon, and Teksu Kim about their performance Codemakers, part of the UMass Bach Festival this past weekend. A thing that I've noticed across all of your work is the emergence of the influence of various Asian diasporas in some of the work that you're making now or that you're you're working with now. That seems like a natural progression to me, was it? Well, I can certainly say in my case that it's something that I came to as an adult. I've been an adult for a long time. So like yeah, in my <laughs> early in my early 20s, which is more than half my life ago, was when I really wanted to come to terms with that. After studying a lot of Western classical music, I had tried to get a handle on jazz at that point, like in black music and, you know, black American music, Afro-diasporic music of all kinds. And it's still an ongoing, lifelong pursuit for me being a part of that world. And, but then like for me being who I am and being a part of like coming of age and trying to become an artist, you know, and be who I am in public in a way that is then like, it often is just the first thing that someone asks me or the first thing that someone mentions when they write about me is that. So then like if I had no relationship to it, it would still be attributed to me. So then I just made it my business to try to make sense of it on my own terms. 
and not necessarily to the point of like trying to represent South Asia in my work, but rather to get to the point where I could work with musicians who carry those traditions. Uh, you know, tabla players, murdangam players, uh, veena players, vocalists. And so that's kind of where then like I had to sort of study some of the rhythmic science and rhythmic spiritual science of that of those traditions and um, then a lot of the about the, mel- the melodic virtuosity and that kind of like intensely spiritual body of knowledge and then of course for me the portal to that was both john and alice coltrane who worked a lot with similar ideas and uh, you know the way that that transformed their music and became a, a central element in John Coltrane's late music and in Alice Coltrane's subsequent artistic life in the 60s, 70s, and beyond. So a lot of different kind of ingredients there, but um, I think it was mainly about, for me, just trying to center myself as an artist in the world. Hey, and you've incorporated some of Korean folk music into your work as well. Was that maybe a part of wanting to work with Texu for a commissioned piece for you to do? Or was it sure. strictly breaking apart Bach? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. As PJ was talking about um, all those influences, I was thinking also about just influences of Korean folk music in my consciousness and just inspiration. And actually, I mean, my parents, my father introduced me to Korean folk music when I was quite young because they listened to it. And I don't know if I, I've, I've been away from Korea for a long time. I came to the United States when I was seven years old. And I think that because of immigration and because of being, you know, kind of separated from my home land, my motherland. Um, I was always kind of obsessed with anything that had to do with Asian culture or Korean culture. And I think that one of the things I could hold on to was this kind of love for Korean culture that my parents introduced me to, and especially the music part, because Korean music is actually really awesome. It's really amazing. It's like earthy and just so rock and roll at times. And it's just so awesome. (laughs) Um, So I grew up listening to it, but I never really got to engage in it in our artistic way except to listen and to enjoy um, because there was no room to do that you know I went to Juilliard where it was very Eurocentric obviously um, and it probably still is you know it's you know there was no room for me to kind of explore that love with my teachers my mentors and I think that kind of journey started after I left college after you know I became an adult actually much, much later. <laughs> so I actually happened upon Texas music because I was actually, you know, I was looking for Korean American composers, Korean composers, because I wanted to just play more and just find out what's going on there. And a few years back, I happened upon this video of one of his works that incorporated panzori, which is um, a specific type of Korean singing, very guttural. And it's it's like a one woman or one man opera for four hours, you know, like a single person singing. Late at night, it is dark and in the street. And I think they practice by, you know, trying to sing in front of a waterfall, trying to get their sound across to, you know, that that sound barrier, which is kind of amazing. 
Um, so, um, yeah, and he texts you this piece. Um, I was totally enthralled by it. It was like so awesome. And, you know, he used pansori, the sounds of pansori with Western style instruments. And, and, and I just, I just love how it kind of all blended together. So I, I've been kind of listening to all his recordings and trying to learn more about his music. And I've been love, loving listening to his music. So I finally got the chance to work with him this way. Yeah. It, in terms of like using Korean, folk music and my own music because i do dabble in composing a little bit it's kind of it's kind of at an exploratory stage and i've been trying to actually garner more knowledge um taking some lessons from um, beloved korean folk and traditional music people around me surround me and taking some trips to korea to go to different folk performances shaman rituals and things like that So that's been really interesting to um, um, experience. So yeah, that's, I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking a lot about Bach and no disparagements to UMass for wanting to put on this big Bach festival, but I've been thinking about it a lot in like Shakespeare, like we are continuing to do the works of this one white dude from 400 years ago from England. If you had your way, each of you, who would you like to see a more expanded deep dive into at a festival in a place like UMass in, in your world and in, in, in the music that you're most interested in? Perhaps it's unfair a question to put you on the spot with, but if you had to pick like not a Bach festival, but a blank festival, who would it be? You have to answer it first, VJR. <laughs> uh, I would, I would choose um, Thelonious Monk, Nina Simone, and... Abida Parveen, who's a great Kamali vocalist from Pakistan. I love it. What about you, Hey-Yung? Okay, I feel good. Um, I don't have any ideas right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody that you're like binge listening to that you're just like in such a like, I can't, I can't stop listening to this person. They're so great. They deserve a whole festival and yeah, I can't wait to go I mean, play their music. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. I, I feel like I feel like I would love to. I haven't played Fiji's music before, but I would love to play more Fiji's music in the in the future. Um, yeah, put a put a festival happen. of Fiji's music. <laughs> yeah, that sounds oh, great. That's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of it, and it's really varied. So you know, that would be a very interesting festival. <laughs> Texu, do you have a person? Oh, um, so do you hear me? Yes. Um, so uh, my go-to for something uh, a festival based on on one person um but my go-to well i whenever i do any interview like this i have to uh, pick one uh, western composer in that case i would go for ravel <laughs> i mean it doesn't have to be I, I don't think it doesn't have it has to be a western composer there are so many different traditions and actually i think that's even fairer to celebrate different traditions every year because there are just so many people and so many traditions so one year it could be festival of now i'm actually digging in uh, korean traditional music it's odd to say i grew up with korean music a little bit but i had to relearn it when i uh, relocate myself to 
the states. Uh, I am relearning about the depth and then how it's really uh, distinct from all the other traditions I have been exposed to. So why not uh, celebrating actual Asian music in Asian <laughs> Art Center? And um, if you, if I wanted to be particular, there is a shamanistic music called Gut. If you haven't heard about it, please check it out. That's a beautiful music and it's ritual, but also it's interspersed with our life. Thank you, everybody, for taking some time for us today and being really amenable. This Saturday was Earth Day. What are the five colleges up to in regards to climate change and carbon neutrality? We'll talk with Beth Hooker, Director of Sustainability at Smith. Ezra Small, Campus Sustainability Manager at UMass. Weston Drips, Amherst College Director of Sustainability and Sarah Draper, Sustainability Manager at Hampshire. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. Saturday was Earth Day and we didn't have a show. So since every day is Earth Day, today is also Earth Day here in The Fabulous 413. And we wanted to figure out what our colleges are up to in the area. So joining us to talk about sustainability and what's going on on the college campuses are Ezra Small, Campus Sustainability Manager at UMass, Sarah Draper, Sustainability Manager at Hampshire, Beth Hooker, Director of Sustainability at Smith, as well as Carolyn McDaniel, Director of Media Relations from Smith, who organized all of these people, and Weston Drips from Amherst College, the Director of Sustainability. There's so many people in this studio right yes. now. Yes. We moved into a new studio <laughs> last week. Almost as many as when we had that giant pile of children last week. <laughs> Wait till we have the Young at Heart Chorus in here. We're really going to push the envelope. But yeah, because, you know, carpooling is important. So we're it's studio true. pooling. We get people all together. <laughs> You're also part of the New England College Renewable Partnership, a first-of-its-kind collaborative purchaser of solar energy for New England higher education. So these are the kind of things that we want to hear about, the, what you're up to in the five colleges as directors. So let's start with you, Weston Drips, Amherst College's Director of Sustainability. What are some of the things that uh, you're working on at Amherst College that you're particularly proud of here to, to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, th thanks for having us on the show, for sure. Um, I've been in my role only for a year, so I'm, I'm the newbie uh, of, of the group here. Um, I'm excited to share that about a month ago, we actually broke ground on the large-scale transformation of our campus energy system. Um, so we have been, like many of our, our peer institutions here, been on steam system based on fossil fuel and are, are undergoing this massive transition, probably one of the biggest capital projects actually at, in Amherst College history in this capacity, um, and really excited about that. And I, I know the other colleges you'll hear about are doing much the same, so we're in the process of putting in some low temperature, hot water um, infrastructure with the goal of adding some geothermal along the way with the opening up the door for us to move to renewable electricity to kind of help run the whole system. So a, a massive transformation. Does low temperature hot water mean that if you take a shower at Amherst, you have to take it at a lower temperature? Or is this a means of like being sustainable in regards to generating energy? That's a great question. No, because if I'm signing up to go to Amherst College, you're like, there's low temperature hot water here. I'm going to be like, meh, I don't know. Maybe Williams it is. <laughs> Well, if you think if you think about it in terms of you know you, there are different ways that you can move energy around. So we've been using steam as a mechanism, but that requires a ton of energy to do so. And uh -huh. so this new system is much much more efficient, um, and will allow us to actually um, I think you know benefit from the efficiencies, but also again allow this transformation in terms of of the source of our our power to run the whole system, which is great. 
you don't have to use a dollar figure if you don't want to, but what type of investment does this mean for, for Amherst College in regards to, you said it's one of the biggest infrastructure investments that the college has ever done? Yeah, I mean, th- these don't come with a small sticker price. Um, I, my colleagues can attest to that as well. But I, I do think, um, you know, it's it's in the, it's north of 100 million in terms wow. of these types of projects. So when I b- say big, I mean big. Yeah. Um, the exciting thing is, though, I think it's provided us an opportunity. We're not nibbling around the edges. We're not making a, a, a bad system a little less bad. I think each of us are really taking a, a, a systems look and saying we're going to radically change how our whole campus energy system actually works. Um, and I think that's a testament to our administrations, our supporters, and others in terms of really bringing about real change, uh, I would say, in terms of just kind of Again, nibbling around the edges or kind of making it a little bit more efficient here, a little bit more efficient. This is a radical overhaul of our entire energy grids. And part of that price tag, too, is like you start seeing the return on it kind of immediately once we've made the shift into something that is more efficient, too. So even though it's more it seems like a lot and what it is. It seems like a lot because it is upfront, but in the long run, like both in terms of what it's going to end up costing the school and the state, that's like you start seeing a lot more, a lot better things in the end. I feel like absolutely. And again, you know, our our, our steam systems are probably a little bit antiquated. They they have a high sticker price to maintain and support and sustain them. So it's not like suddenly there's this brand new project. I mean, we were going to have to be investing in the old system to upgrade it, and so making this transition to your point is, yes, it has a high capital cost, but we are also higher ed institutions that hope to be around a long time. <laughs> so it's not like we're flipping a house, right, in, in terms of trying to get our return immediately. And so I, I think Not to we, mention how embarrassing that's going to be to try and explain to your students in like 2070, oh yeah, we have this, it, we decided to be a museum in terms of energy for reasons we can't really yeah. explain, but you know, like you'll get into it later. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think we can be in it for the long haul. Uh, unlike maybe other residential projects or even corporate projects, it's like we we want to be around for another couple hundred years. For the you know we've been around for a couple hundred years, we hope to continue that so we can we can be in it for the fifty year payback or the or or even more. Um, so that, yeah, that's Weston Drips, who's Amherst College's director of sustainability. Let's move on to Beth Hooker, who's the director of sustainability at Smith. What are some of the things that Smith has in store for sustainability? going on right now. Well, thanks uh, for having us, and um, thanks for having uh, an extended Earth Day celebration. Um, as you know, Earth Day is every day for, for us, is uh, the work that we do. Um, and it was great to hear Weston um, talk about what they're doing at Amherst College at, at Smith. Um, we're actually entering our second year of our geothermal energy project. Uh, our board of trustees last year approved our largest capital project. Um, our price tag is $215 million. Um, so kind of, uh, you know, a, a sticker shock. Um, look at that, but um, you know, this year we're we're moving on to year two in uh, a six-year project, transformation of our energy systems, um, and uh, we're going to have a lot of uh, geo drilling this summer, um, and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing uh, how our neighbors are really excited about that, but also um, working with our campus constituency on some really cool projects, including um, one that we just had last Friday. Um, we partnered with our uh, Wordle Center for uh, Leadership last fall. Um, on an Your amp- what center? Wordle. Okay, so um, not, not, the, Wordle. not the online, <laughs> no. the word um, game. Although okay. if you have, it's a five-letter word, 
Uh-huh. Right. Yes. <laughs> I won't tell um, you what word my, chil- my child starts with. Okay. <laughs> New England public media would not be appreciative no. of it. But um, anyway, continue. So Sorry. we partnered with the Wirtle Center uh, for leadership on their Amplify Art competition. And there were 20 uh, submissions for students to um, really interpret the geothermal project and, and our you know goal to be carbon neutral by 2030 through art. Um, and over 20 uh, students uh, submitted. We had a panel of uh, alums and artists who, who looked at them. We had three finalists. And on Friday, we actually installed those. We, we had them blown up to go on the fencing around uh, the, where the geofields are going. Um, and they look amazing. They're probably about four by eight um, and art, install- art sort of interpretations of, of what we're doing on campus. So I think all of your campuses are moving towards geothermal, but what does that actually, like, and these are big projects, but I don't think anybody really necessarily understands what goes into the conversion from steam or from whatever system to a geothermal system. You have to drill, but what else What else happens? And how yeah. far do you have to drill? Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, our engineers actually know. Um, so that's good. Um, and, and so we're feeling pretty good about that. Um, so we have it at Smith, we have three different districts and there'll be uh, geofield um, in each of the districts that we have. And then there'll be energy centers that have uh, heat pumps. So you probably have a heat pump in your house. You might have a refrigerator um, or an, an air conditioner, um, for example, that those are examples of heat pumps or you've transitioned to heat pump um, in your house, mini splits. Um, and then we'll do a low temperature hot water um, transformation of that into all the buildings. So um, the, in our case, the geo, our geofield this year will be 70 wells um, in this area that's north of Route 9 or Elm Street, that, as we call it, in Northampton. Um, and those will go down 800 feet. And that's based on modeling, based on the kind of uh, geology that's there. So last summer, our faculty geologists were so excited because they got to see, like, ooh, what's the geology down there? Oh, yeah. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, I'm excited. The rocks um, down there must be unbelievable. They really are. <laughs> um, and we also have a, 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 a research site um, at our field station, I mean, our field field house, um, and we have a lot of research going on there. So it's, you know, ongoing research in, in those places. That's Beth Hooker, who's the director of sustainability at Smith. And you mentioned, and I don't know if this was facetious, that your neighbors would be excited about how much geothermal is going on. Was that facetious because there's going to be so much drilling? Or is there a benefit with Smith going geothermal to the greater Northampton community surrounding that area? Yeah, that's a great question. And and certainly it's going to be a little bit loud, but transformations like this, you know, there is a cost um, in terms of uh, what goes on, and, and we've modeled the how loud it will be because, as I said last year, we did we did a test well, so um, we have that well in hand. But um, we're ten percent of the city of Northampton's carbon footprint, and uh-huh. so by our reduce by our doing this, we're reducing our own uh, on campus emissions by ninety percent, um, and therefore we'll be reducing uh, the town of Northampton's emissions. So they'll be able to meet their climate goals, which are set for twenty fifty. Our climate goal is set for twenty thirty. Um, and the other piece is, you know, both at, you know, at Smith and at Amherst and at UMass, um, there are power plants there. And so once we move off fossil fuel, then the air quality is going to be better for, for the region as well. That's Beth Hooker, Director of Sustainability at Smith. Let's move over to Sarah Draper, who's the Sustainability Manager at Hampshire. What's Hampshire got going on when it comes to sustainability issues? And what are you working on and most excited about? Oh, what a 
fun question. And also, just thanks for inviting us all at the same time. We do also hang out outside of work <laughs> about work-related things, but it's fun to be able to be here with, with all these fun friends. It's our pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> So our Hampshire's big announcement and the thing that I'm excited about this year is that we were able to reach carbon neutrality for both the energy that we use on campus, you know, our electrical energy for the fossil fuels that we're still using on campus where we do still have natural gas heating um, and for our kind of indirect admission admissions. So thinking about things like people commuting to campus or the travel that our admissions folks do when they go out to get New Hampshire kids. Um, so that was definitely a huge thing. That's something that we first put into our climate action plan in 2012. So, you know, carbon neutral by 2022. And I actually was, I just started this role specifically. Um, I've been at Hampshire for a while, but moved into this um, sustainability role about a year ago. And my first order of business was, well, I wonder how we did since 2012, because <laughs> we had a bit of a gap where we weren't really um, running the numbers year to year. So I, I sort of just went in with curiosity to do our, you know, our carbon impact, looking at the data that we have on all of all the pieces of our carbon impact. And I was very pleasantly and excitedly surprised to see that, hey, we did what we said we were going to do. And a huge piece of that for us has been um, solar energy. So we have a lot of different solar arrays on campus on individual buildings. Um, we also have these two big ground mount solar arrays that we have in partnership with Tesla, formerly Solar City. Um, it was nice working with those guys when they were still Solar City. Now it's now you've got a Tesla. Fine. <laughs> um, Fine is a word. Yeah, fine is a word. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't rapidly and suddenly disincorporate or whatever happened with Tesla over the weekend. Yeah, we, we, sure we, we try really NDAs. hard for that not to happen. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to have a bunch of different uh, examples of solar energy on campus. You know, we have students that are able to go and use those two huge solar arrays to do studies, which otherwise they'd have to be going elsewhere for. And it can be a little challenging to get research permission to go poke around in a solar field. Um, I think my favorite piece that I am personally most excited about is our living building, the RW Kern Center. And that's only partially because I used to work at the architecture firm that designed it. Uh -huh. <laughs> you want to um, shout them out because they do. I, is this the one where the Hitchcock Center is yeah, located as well? I've yep. been there and visited that building. It is remarkable to see. Thank you. Yeah. So the architects were Bruner Cott and Associates. They're from Cambridge. They're awesome. Um, thanks for also bragging that we have two living buildings on our campus, uh -huh. both the Kern Center and the Hitchcock Center. Yes. Um, but if you and ever... For, for those who don't know what a living building is, can I you explain that a little bit? I yeah. will. I'll give the briefest <laughs> It's not scary like Baba Yaga. It's like on chicken legs or anything like that. Um, we do collaborate <laughs> with bacteria to do our building uh, processes, though. So in that sense, it's a little bit living. Yeah, a little bit. So a living building is uh, basically a really sustainable building. Some of the things that includes at the Kern Center are things like composting toilets, which use no drinking water to move your poop around, unlike regular toilets. I know. Which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous when, you think when about most it. of the world does not have access to clean drinking water, and we literally poop in clean drinking water yes. in this country all the time. It's the most ridiculous thing. Um, we also have, you know, we treat our own gray water in the building. Plants actually treat that gray water. They take up nutrients and eat it up for us and turn it into things that we can put back out on the site. 
Um, we're also growing some of our own food. And of course, we were producing all of our own energy. So that building is net zero energy. I, I love this, too, because, you know, Ham Amherst and Smith are well endowed and Hampshire was on the cusp of, of going out of business. But it's still an important and pivotal piece of the puzzle to the point where you've invested in it to the level where you're now carbon neutral even uh, even as we speak, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean the thing that I find exciting about being at Hampshire is what we can do is innovate and be an example and figure out what we can say yes to. So one of the things that we do have a lot of is land. So we can use that land to grow food locally on our campus farm, and we can use that land to put in land conservation. You know, we have some forest in conservation restriction, and we can use that land to produce solar for our neighbors and ourselves. That is Sarah Draper, the sustainability manager at Hampshire. We've got one more college represented here with UMass and Ezra Small, who's the campus sustainability manager at UMass. Ezra Small representing the largest college <laughs> uh, in regards to this. And I'm assuming with the largest impact in regards yes. to, uh, you know, CO2 and all the other emissions they're adding to greenhouse gas. So tell us a little bit, Ezra, about what UMass is up to. That's right. So you, you'd probably be interested in knowing that UMass Amherst is um, responsible for about 20 percent of the state's carbon emissions in the state portfolio. So all the state facilities across the whole Commonwealth, we have, we're 20 percent of that. That's so, unbelievable. unbelievable. UMass Amherst, not the UMass system. Just UMass Amherst. 20 percent so, of all state carbon emissions. Right. And so if you've been on campus, you would know that we're like, we operate like a small city, right? Oh, yeah. We have yep. 13 million square feet of building space. We have 26 miles of steam lines under the ground. And so when you ask, what does this energy transition look like at UMass, it is really hard to wrap your head around it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we've actually been, a lot of people have been working really hard, uh, even predating the big Chancellor Subhaswamy announcement of UMass Carbon Zero 2032 carbon neutrality goal, which um, he announced last Earth Day in 2022. But even before that, a lot of people on campus have been coming together to figure out how do we do this, right? And so, um, so we we put together a, a plan, this UMass Carbon Zero plan, that basically is a lot like what my colleagues here have talked about. It's relying on this formula of low temperature hot water, decarbonizing our campus energy system by moving away from steam, which allows you to move away from fossil fuels, right, and electrifying your campus. But you need heat pumps for that. You need geothermal wells. So we've actually we've dug five uh, test, test bore test wells around campus. And the first one was over our Boyden Athletic Fields, which is where we plan to put our big, big well field, which is actually about going to be about 600 wells. So... Everything is bigger at UMass, right? <laughs> um, and, and even the, just those 600 wells, we're going to be able to get only about 20% of our buildings on that, that, that low-temperature hot water system. So that's just a district, pretty much the west side of our campus. And then we have to figure out how to do all the other parts of campus. Wow. But things happen so fast at UMass, right? And so, for example... We just had a, a groundbreaking today for a sustainable engineering lab that is going to be built in probably within two years. I just and got the press release while we were sitting here. During yeah. This. Yeah. yeah, so that's really exciting because that's where our wind energy center is going to live. That's where our um, energy transition institute is going to live. Um, and there's just so much amazing stuff going on research-wise and curricular-wise at UMass. Um, and so this will be a hub for all of the energy transition 
uh, work um, and for all the great minds to come together and, and, and figure out this, this transition, not just for UMass, but for the whole Commonwealth, for the whole region, for the whole country and the whole world. So uh, we're really excited about that. But these buildings need to be built, right? And so we have this goal, but now we're adding new buildings and new energy <laughs> needs. Yeah. So it's really hard as this train keeps moving to try to say, okay, stop, let's, let's make sure these new buildings are going to sort of plug and play into this new, this new system once we put it in. So that's where we are. Um, uh, like, like Beth at, at Hampshire, we're going to be about 800 feet deep. Um, and, and, um, and really, you know, the, the scale of it and the responsibility of it also comes great opportunity. So we actually also developed a learning lab uh, committee and a learning lab team that is looking at all the learning opportunities that come along with this energy transition, right? For every discipline. I mean, you can think of not just engineering students, right, and engineering faculty, but I mean, think about the way that we talk about this, the way that we communicate about this. So journalism and communications, I mean, the list goes on, all the humanities. So it's not just about, you know, the, 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 the operational side of it. It's about the, how we communicate it, how we talk about it, how we, how we uh, all the humanities around it, the, the arts uh, is really important. We have this arts and activism uh, collaboration with our fine arts center, the Bromery Center, um, just doing amazing events throughout the year. Um, around climate change and um, and different different cultures that are impacted right now, uh, and bringing those cultures and giving them a voice. So, uh, just yeah, so much going on at UMass. Intersectionality is key. Yes. I love it. And yes. having on college campuses, it seems to be the best place because that's people are going there to try to change the future. And all of these opportunities that these four of the five colleges represented are presenting are, you know, it's great for these students that are going there. Well, coming up in just a, a little bit, we're going to hear more about the New England College Renewable Partnership, which is a first of its time collective purchaser of solar. We're talking with four of the five sustainability directors from four of the five colleges you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're sitting here with four folks involved in sustainability in some of the five colleges. Ezra Small from UMass, Weston Drips of Amherst College, Sarah Draper from Hampshire, and Beth Hooker from Smith as well as Karen McDaniel sitting, lurking in the corner over here. Who helped corral all of these people in one place, which is we're really grateful for. And I was mentioning before we were talking about the New England College Renewable Partnership, which is a first-of-its-kind solar purchasing uh, group for higher, uh, for higher ed. Two of the people here were involved in those conversations, or at least one of them was. Three of the four colleges represented here are part of that partnership. But it, I think it makes the most sense for you, Beth Hooker, from Smith to talk about what that's all about, because you were there as this was being negotiated. Right. So this um, was actually uh, in 2010. I think there was something called a blue sky brainstorm across all five colleges um, just to look at what could we do together collaboratively, you know, for sustainability. And one of the ideas was, why don't we just get solar together? Um, and that was, you know, sort of put on the table. And then at some point, um, a couple of the presidents picked it up. So uh, President McCartney at Smith and, and President Jonathan Lash were like, hey, maybe this could be kind of a cool project. And um, so fast forward, you know, a number of years from, from that. Um, so uh, Amherst, Smith College, Hampshire, 
I have to count them. Um, yeah. Williams College, also in the 413, um, and then Bowdoin College. We all went together in a collaborative purchase of, of solar. Um, and identified a, a project in Farmington, Maine, uh, where we each get certain portions of our electricity from. So Smith gets 30% of our electricity load um, from that from that project. Williams gets something like 70%. Amherst gets about 50%. Um, and Hampshire is involved in terms of um, purchasing 40% renewable. 40%? Four? Renewable. 4%. No, 4%. 4%. 4%. Um, but and you also, have your own solar farm. Yeah. So. This was bonus. <laughs> this is part of the bonus the bonus package. Um, I want to make the worst joke. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> when a series of colleges love sustainability very much, they get together and they have a solar baby. I love it. <laughs> solar Babies is such a great movie. Anyway. <laughs> it's not a good movie anyway. <laughs> I don't know how it holds up. I haven't watched it since the 80s. Uh, we'll use that. Yeah. Yeah. Solar so babies. our solar baby uh, is this one, and, and uh, it's a, just a great project that we're all able to be part of. And as we move forward with electrifying our campuses, we have to identify other projects like that. So thinking about renewable solar or wind or other kinds of projects. So we're all kind of looking at those as well. And we're not trying to ostracize UMass. It's just a little bit more complicated when it comes to the state in regards to the, being able to purchase these things. Yeah, because we you are table, kind of a city. Yeah. Right. And that's actually the Blue Sky Initiative that Beth mentioned. That was like actually our first thing that we collaborated on about oh, more than 10 years ago. So that was really cool. And all these great ideas came out of it. And one of the ideas that came out of it was also on-campus solar. So since 2013, UMass has built about uh, seven megawatts of solar parking canopies. So, in, you know, instead of you know, compromising our green space, we're just looking at how can our, our, our concrete be turned into these sort of green energy power plants. So we're just building uh, solar canopies all over campus. I've parked under those solar canopies many times. Same. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> they come in real handy. Well, a huge thank you again, first of all, to Carolyn McDaniel from Smith for organizing everybody, but to Ezra Small, <laughs> the campus sustainability manager at UMass, Sarah Draper, the sustainability manager at Hampshire, Beth Hooker, the director of sustainability at Smith, and Weston Drips, Amherst College's director of sustainability, for telling us what's been going on in at least four of the five colleges. We'll get you soon, Mount Holyoke, uh, to hear what's going on. Um, in this week, the Monday after Earth Day. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, how fast is Western Mass losing farmland? We'll talk with Chelsea Gazillo, American Farmland Trust, New England Policy Manager. Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on science versus tradition when it comes to moon gazing and the end of Ramadan. Sorry, we had to bump you to Tuesday, Dr. Hamid. Damani Gordon from Genuine Culture LLC on the Native Tongues Tribute at White Lion this weekend, and NEPM's Jill Kaufman on an innovative program teaching guitar behind bars in Franklin County. Our director is Tony Yuan. Who on the show now? Done. Our engineer is Betsy. Is it Monday Cordis? Our technical team is Bart bringing extra coffee, rank, and Kara moving truck ground coordinator Foster and punk rock Dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, The Brass, BJ Iyer, Hey Young Sol Yoon, Texu Kim Homebody, and Louis Armstrong. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.